You're listening to Alternative Thinking, Both Sides of the Coin, a production of the Canadian Association of Alternative Strategies and Assets, where we explore today's markets and alternative investments from two distinct perspectives. Today we're speaking with a commensurate alts junkie, so to speak, with experience in virtually all areas of alternatives and whose role now gives him a great view of all things alternative. We also have the head of a growing multifamily office who has a different view of 60-40 and sees cryptocurrency as a new asset class that perhaps all investors should have a disciplined allocation to. It's all in the rebalancing. This will prove to be a fun trip down the side paths of alternatives and family office allocations. James Brown is the president and co-founder of CASA. All opinions expressed during the show by James and our show guests remain their own and should be used for informational and educational purposes only. Find out more about CASA at casa.ca. Welcome. Today's Friday, May 8th, and this is James Brown with CASA, and this is Alternative Thinking. Today, we're speaking with Keith Black from the CHI Association and Arthur Salzer from Northland Wealth Management. Uh, we'll start with self-introductions, uh, starting with you, Keith. Uh, thanks, James. And uh, my name is Keith Black. I'm with the, the CHI Association. We're a global association uh, that has education on alternative investments. Our level one and level two exam have been passed by 11,000 charter holders in more than 90 countries. And we also have the Fundamentals of Alternative Investments Program, a 20-hour video-based course that's approved for IROC credit that looks at all of the areas of alternative investments, including hedge funds and managed futures, venture capital, buyouts, and private debt real assets as well as structured products. Wow, that's great. That's extensive too. And I know I think I remember right, you're Kaya member number seventeen. I think you, there's another there's a third designation uh that you're you're member number one on. The uh is it what was it FDP? FDP, financial data professional. I am member number one. We've got about uh seventy members now. Uh nice. And and we just finished our uh second abbreviated exam. And that studies on uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence, big data and mm. data science as applied to financial markets. So if you're interested in how hedge funds use uh, alternative data like uh, Twitter and satellites and national language processing, this uh, designation is for you. Oh, that's pretty cool. That's, a, that's, a, that's an awesome extension. I remember I did Kaya back in 06 and my number's sub 700, but you know, <laughs> so many poor people now. And, but, but that is a lot of work and the fundamentals, uh, 20 hours is doable for almost, I'd say anybody. Uh, but FDP, like people that have come in, especially people that have come in from overseas, coming into Canada, where we, where I am, um, you know, they're like, how can I get to know AI and, and all this stuff? I'm like, okay, listen, there's FDP now. And then to Arthur, uh, tell us about yourself and what you're doing there at uh, Northland Wealth Management. So I'm, uh, I'm the founder C, uh, CEO of Northland Wealth. We are a Canadian multifamily office founded in 2011. We uh, look after the financial capital as well as the human capital of the families we serve. We have a family base stretching from Victoria, British Columbia to uh, Nova Scotia in Canada. We serve with members of families that are living uh, currently in Europe, places like England, France, Belgium. Uh, We have families as far away as Barbados, uh, Cayman, the Bahamas, the United States, Mexico, and Costa Rica. Uh, What separates us from 
many of the firms in Canada that mm -hmm. call themselves family offices is that we bring institutional quality alternative investments to our families. Uh, these are the same managers, the same funds, the same fees that Canada Pension Plan Investment Board accesses or Case de Depot or Sovereign Wealth Fund like uh, Abu Dhabi. And that makes us a rarity in Canada. Uh, we've utilized mm. these types of alternative investments since our founding and subsequently uh, have been built for times such as these that we've experienced the last four months. At a firm level, um, at worst, we drew down less than 10% across the firm um, mm -hmm. in March. And as of the end of March, I think we were down less than six. Uh, so families have been able to not only maintain their capital, uh, but in some cases, the conversations we're explaining how clients actually grew their capital over a very difficult quarter. Oh, that's super. So you got, yeah, you got clients in, uh, I guess all the nooks and crannies across Canada. And then you can see quite a few in Europe, um, and down in Costa Rica and such came in, um, yeah, are the, the, the foreign, the foreign ones, were they, were they folks that were in Canada that left or did you come across, how do you come across all these people, all these different places? Our, our root families, they, they always have a, a core nexus, which is they're, they're, they're Canadian, um, hmm. usually by birth or at least, uh, originally by residency. Uh, but families in this day and age are global and, uh, mm -hmm. the next generation will move to other countries to pursue, um, opportunities in career, opportunities in love and family. Um, some members will pursue, obviously, better weather or better tax jurisdictions than Canada offers. <laughs> yeah. and, and that's the reality today. And we are designed to help a family, um, no matter where they wish to go uh, personally or geographically. That's interesting. I was going to ask you about yeah, about tax because it sounds like well, some of those they call them tax havens, but for mo most investors, it's it's just tax neutral, so it's not going to impose or or expose um, entities to more tax than they probably should have if you're in Cayman and Bahamas and that. But uh, how uh, do, do you do all the tax planning too, or do you have a, like a subgroup, or do you refer to somebody? How do you handle that side? We are happy to use the the tax experts that families have. So many of our families have owned and operated businesses for either decades or generations, and they'll have ingrained uh, tax experts and accounting firms. Sometimes they're, the, they're usually the big five or the big seven, um, and we're happy to work with them. Uh, in other cases, families may come into money, whether it's through inheritance or some form of wealth transfer. And in those cases, we're more than happy to bring in professionals that we have had very good experiences with. Uh, but we are uh, non-denominational in regards to uh, working with a specific accounting firm. Ah, oh, super. And then for the asset breakdown, um, I know you have this like a 60-40 model, but your 40, or maybe your 60 isn't isn't the norm. Explain how, how that works, what you're well, thinking. Well, I mean, when I was, you know, when I was taking my CFA program back in, in the 90s, uh, the 60-40 portfolio really was the starting point for institutions. It was the starting point of discussions for, for private wealth. And, and, and the ending point for many too, yeah. <laughs> exactly. 
But I think the world has has changed, and I think the 60-40 ratio is still very important. Um, and, and, and as much as you know, everybody loves alternatives right now, uh, you still do want some liquidity in your portfolio. So our starting point of mm-hmm. discussion is 60% public market exposure. That might be equities. That might be credit or fixed income. And 40% alternatives or non-public assets. And those would include asset classes such as private real estate, private equity, growth equity, um, hedge funds, private credit. Uh, going into uh, 2020, we were probably 55% in alternative investments across the firm for our families. And subsequently, uh, many of the funds have acted in the ways that we had underwritten. Uh, private credit funds uh, gated, which we um, mm-hmm. which we expected, uh, which made us very happy that they weren't providing liquidity because we designed portfolios to have sufficient liquidity elsewhere. What we didn't want to see was wholesale selling of performing assets uh, for no reason at all other than some other investor was scared. So we've been quite happy uh, with the performance um, uh, of our alternatives, and even to a degree, our, our public market investments, which have tended to be uh, on the lower volatility side. Yeah, I guess that yeah, that, that selling I guess becomes like a second order exogenous threat that just kind of happens in, within the portfolio from something that happens um, outside it. So yeah, it's that's kind of the worst worst case scenario for for many of these these investments. Um, that's interesting. Hey uh, Keith. For your side, like, have you? Are there many investors or, or allocators that that think like Arthur, or, or is it, or is there like a, a strata that that does? Or it sounds a bit like the Yale model that, uh, of course, you've looked into for decades, and uh, but then you've also traded options and that, so I have a pretty good idea how they, of course, how the the public markets work. Uh, is this the type of scene that you see that's that's typical or maybe more atypical? Yeah, I think this does sound like the the endowment model or uh, some of the smarter uh, Canadian plans that, that Arthur brought up uh, earlier. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the, the billion-dollar universities in the uh, in U.S. and Canada have, on average, about 55% uh, in alternative investments. And what they're trying to do is take this perpetual mindset. And uh, David Swenson from, from Yale thinks about risk pretty, pretty differently. Uh, he's trying to cover inflation so he could be perpetual, but he's also trying to cover a four or 5% annual spending rate. And mm. so his risk measure is the probability of losing half his money on an inflation adjusted basis after spending over 30 years. And so if you're investing in a, in a zero or 2% fixed income, which we might call risk free, that's actually the most risky thing because in 30 years, you're basically out of money. And so uh, a big part of that endowment model is focusing on the inflation protection. And we'll see a lot of those plans have uh, 20% uh, in real assets, whether real estate, infrastructure, farmland, timberland, uh, commodities, uh, inflation hedging bonds are uh, key assets to, to maintain that, that perpetual inflation-adjusted mindset. Yeah, and I guess for a family that's that has, um, they're thinking of generations. Maybe maybe they are more like an endowment. It is perpetual. It's less like in a like eventually all these defined benefit plans are going to die out. 
so to speak, um, because all the all the folks will be retired and they'll start to, you know, wind down all the, all the cash. And as everything moves into, uh, into DC, which puts people to their own whims, I guess, um, to the retail market. Um, and on that, I guess we're seeing, we saw it somewhat in the U S with, with 40 act and in Canada with the liquid alts. What, what have you seen Keith with, uh, with that? Have those, um, uh, have penetrated or infiltrated the, the DC plans or is it mostly the traditional stuff uh, and then most pension, DC pension, or defined contribution pension uh, beneficiaries wouldn't get access to the kind of thinking and assets that Arthur has. So we see uh, globally there's about 3.2 trillion U.S. dollars in private hedge funds, and the liquid alt space is up to about 800 billion uh, between USITs and and 40 Act, and obviously smaller and and newer mm. uh, in in Canada. Uh, so. Fully a quarter of the global hedge fund business is now in the uh, liquid alternatives. Uh, we, what we see in, in defined contribution plans is that the plan trustees are pretty conservative. And so they would generally have uh, three or four bond funds, uh, five or six equity funds. They'll have these these target date or, or balanced funds. And they've been pretty light on the liquid alternatives. If there is anything uh, dedicated, it uh, tends to be something like a REIT fund, uh, which isn't uh, mm. exactly a, a hedge fund kind of strategy. Yeah, like we saw like back in my day, I think, it, I don't know if it's, it's, it's REIT basically the same returns as real assets uh, or direct real estate, but with two to three times the volatility. So it probably doesn't help you out too much on the, on the vol side and correlation side. Um, yeah, and then in Canada, you mentioned like the, globally is about a quarter liquid alts out of the the hedge fund book globally of three point two trillion. Uh, in Canada, it's about eighteen percent actually, so it's getting there, uh, and it's only been like a, a year or two. But uh, Arthur, what, what, do you have any liquid alts in there, um, or is it most of your, most of your hedge funds? I think you define them as illiquid. So most of the offering memorandum ones that would be in um, monthly liquidity or quarterly or something like that. How how, how do you view the liquid alts? Our, our, um, we, we haven't um, invested in the liquid alt space, um, primarily because where we want liquidity is, is typically in the public markets. Um, our favorite mm. hedge funds have limited liquidity, typically lockups of one to three years. Oh, wow. And th those, those um, we find have outperformed. Um, mm -hmm. it, both in, in good markets and in, in downward uh, markets. Um, they tend to be more sophisticated from a uh, risk management basis. Uh, some of the underlying, um, I guess you would call them relative value uh, credit managers that are, that are using uh, longer lockup structures were, were actually net positive. Uh, ending March, whereas we, we saw some of the more liquid managers uh, have have drawdowns in the double digits. So we, we're we're quite happy with uh, with dealing that with that illiquidity aspect. Um, we don't believe in general that um, if you are going to the alternative space to non-public market, that liquidity should be high on the list. It should be. Uh, you should understand where the liquidity comes from. For instance, are mm -hmm. you dealing with the relative value credit manager, which is buying public bonds, you know, usually investment grade bonds or, or government debt? 
or are you dealing with uh, a private credit fund that, that lends money for a duration of, of nine months to, to two to three years? Mm-hmm. And you need to underwrite that liquidity of the underlying asset, not necessarily the liquidity or conditions of the fund. Yeah, I was going to ask you about, you know, if, if things hadn't gone down, is that because of stale dating or they just really didn't move the marks too much? Or uh, is this, uh, or and I guess if they did, it would be a fire sale too. Uh, is it, and because it might be in li- limited, like limited trading markets. Uh, what's the composition of your funds? Primarily, most of the hedge funds we deal with are on the credit side. Uh, we haven't found value in uh, long, short credit or global macro the, the past, you know, six, seven, eight years. Mm. Um, if you look at some of the drawdown numbers or, or actually even the positive performance, there are some very good Canadian long, short equity managers. Um, yeah. We don't have capital with. We've done lots of due diligence. We didn't. We just decided not to add that. Uh, manager of that asset class to portfolios, uh, but they did a stellar, stellar job on a year-to-date basis. Um, on the credit side, the the non-Canadian credit managers were uh, very adept at were ensuring tail risk, and mm-hmm. their hedges paid off, uh, providing positive rates of return uh, for the quarter. Uh, those were offset with large markdowns on the CDOs. But the, the the tail hedges paid off definitely to to offset that. Cool. So we've been we've been we've been fairly pleased. So in in March the TSX was down about seventeen point seven percent, and the Scotiabank Alternative Mutual Fund Index was down six point six percent. And so you could look at that two different ways: have have liquid alts failed because they were down six percent, or have liquid alts succeeded because they beat the long only equity market by by eleven percent? So so Arthur, how do your clients uh, think? Are they thinking in, in terms of, of relative returns that, that we were 1100 over? Or are they thinking in terms of absolute returns that they still lost money and therefore it was uh, ineffective? They're always going to take the worst case. They'll, they'll take a high water mark and uh, <laughs> then they'll go back and say, you know, look, you lost me money. Um, realistically, uh, a lot of the families that have joined us, say the past two to three years, the discussions have been, you've sold your business for 150 million. Uh, because uh, equity valuations are high, um, you know, risk levels are high. That's why you got so much when you thought your business was only worth 100, you got 150. Mm. Uh, subsequently, we don't think you should take a lot of, of equity risk um, for the next few years until we see a, a major drawdown event. And then during that case, you know, we should up, up the, the, the risk levels of a portfolio, but, but not till then. And they were very happy with, with staying wealthy as opposed to trying to get wealthy the last couple of years. Uh, when the drawdown happened, we've been having um, different discussions and we've been adding risk to the portfolio in, in some ways. Um, uh, and in some ways modifying it, but um, we, we were quite, I, I would say we were neutral going into to 2020. And and do you invest equally across the equity market, or are there some sectors or geographies you are are more or less constructive on? I mean, we've always tended to be overweight uh, Canada. We, we we've got a Canadian bias because you're dealing with with Canadian families, um, but we still have global exposure. Um, we were underweight emerging markets. We still had some. Um, 
we, we were underweight the U.S. compared to MSCI, but we, we still had exposure there. And, and I guess with, with overweight names, you know, like, like Shopify, that, that's helped. And becoming more overweight every day. Definitely. We were, we were very fortunate. Uh, we were um, one of the original investors in Shopify back in 2010. So we, uh, through uh, one of our, our growth equity managers in Canada, invested at a $70 million valuation. Uh, Omer's Ventures came in at $700 million. They were taken public at $2.4 billion, and now they're north of $100 billion. And will tech stocks uh, outperform forever, or is there ever a, a return to value here? There's got to be a return to value sometime. Um, I just I just don't <laughs> know when. Um, typically at, uh, at market apexes, especially after these big drawdowns, there, there is a change of leadership that, that occurs. I mean, we saw it. Uh, we saw it in the, the early 90s when I was beginning my career. We saw it again in the early 2000s uh, after the tech bubble popped. Uh, we saw, you know, a resurgence of, of U.S. companies and growth equity. Um, you know, after that, the, the 08 crisis, uh, I, I'd expect some change of leadership here. Um, so far, it hasn't happened. It doesn't seem to be. Um, but I think we're still early. Um, the U.S. has had the most stimulus, both from a monetary and fiscal aspect. And I think once you start looking out a year or two or three or five, um, there probably are opportunities um, in the emerging markets, especially um, from, a, from, from a value perspective. But it, but it might still be a bit too early. Because in emerging markets, a lot of times the value stocks actually have growth potential. Exactly, exactly, because the, the marketplace is growing. It should grow faster than the U.S., especially when we've seen this kind of decimation to, to Main Street. Um, but I think we, we still have a long way to go before we're, we're out the other side. We've been de-risking uh, the past, call it two to three weeks. We have uh, built up uh, a bit of a gold bullion position, uh, typically between 5 and 10% of a family's portfolio. And as a, as a financial outlier, we're probably the first multifamily office in Canada, maybe, maybe even North America, that did an allocation to, to Bitcoin. Uh, so far, that's working very, very well. Yeah, I think Paul, Paul Tudor Jones just said he was, he was uh, out making an allocation of somewhere like he said it would be low, low, lower single digits, but to his, to his hedge fund as well. So uh, they're in good company now. Yeah, but he was doing it with uh, with futures, right? So I mean, he's he's going to be levered. So I've read some research that uh, everyone should put one uh, to three percent in in Bitcoin in their uh, in their portfolio. Uh, it's hugely volatile, but it's relatively uncorrelated. We've seen that Bitcoin is is up year year to date. So you could run some some portfolio statistics, and even at a one percent weight, uh, even though it's hugely volatile on its own, the low correlation is actually going to uh, leave your portfolio volatility unchanged and hopefully add some some return there. Yes, definitely. Um, the key is rebalancing. And that means buying more after it drops 50%. And that means selling when it goes up 50%. So I've, I've read some of the things you've, you've written, Arthur, and, and you have some views on the difference between private-private uh, equity and public-private equity. And then uh, liquid alts versus uh, 
versus private hedge funds. And you talked a little bit about that before, but what if someone is is not uh, ultra high net worth? What is what is the role for them in uh, in liquid alternatives or, or public private equity? I think the risk is um, when you invest in the alternatives market, it, it really is the private market space. In, in some cases, it's it's becoming quasi regulated, um, but it's but it's much much less so. And it's like buying individual stocks um, that have very different operational risks than what many investors are used to. And unless you have uh, a team of professionals or a firm that can access top quartile, you know, institutional quality managers, for the most part, it's better not to invest in that asset class. The, the risks are uh, higher than what you would normally experience. If you don't have um, a, a lot of savings or a very uh, high net worth, uh, diversified portfolios that, that, that robo-advisors offer that are low cost can make a lot of sense. Um, they may or may not add you know, some type of um, alternative or exotic asset class to them, but they'll, they'll tend to do it in a common sense amount. Uh, but again, there's still some professional oversight there. They probably have a CFA or two trying to, to manage risk. Do-it-yourselfers, you're really getting into a different realm. And it's like buying uh, microcap uh, biotech stocks or tech stocks on a public exchange uh, because you talk to your buddy and you think it's a great thing. Uh, I'd say probably in 9 out of 10 or maybe more like 99 out of 100 cases where clients uh, over my 30-year career wanted to get into those types of ventures, they typically lost everything. Um, investing at the initial spot, you know, at the get-go should be about savings, building your net worth, building retirement. Uh, it's not a form, it shouldn't be a form of gambling. And when you get into the alternative space, unless you have the, uh, the time, the dedication, the understanding, it's probably better to shy away from it and, and deal just with a balanced portfolio, a balanced diversified portfolio. Is it easier to do due diligence on, on publicly traded vehicles than, than private partnerships? No, I much prefer the private world because um, you won't you won't invest unless you get material inside information. Uh, when you um, uh, we had a client who invested in a in a private coin, a private token, uh, two years ago, and uh, I said I'm not so sure about this. I said let me let me talk to these these guys that raised, you know, that took half a million dollars from you. And I said I'll even sign an NDA. So I signed the NDA. We get on a a call like this. Uh, because he wouldn't meet me face to face. And I said, great, I've signed the NDA. Tell me who the other investors are. Well, we can't tell you that because there's an NDA signed with them and we promise not to disclose. And I'm like, hang on here. The, the whole point of the NDA is to see everything. It just means that I won't go out and tell somebody down the street what's going on within your organization. But we're all going to know who's as there as partners. And they said, well, we're never going to disclose that. I said, okay, you're a scam. You're a fraud. And I went back to the clients and told them so. So the private world, um, you do want NDAs, you do want full disclosure, uh, but you need to understand what's being presented. Uh, so if you if you can't you know sift through the legals and you can't sift through the the accounting and the reporting, then you probably shouldn't be playing in that world. It, it's like owning and operating your own private business. I, I see your point, Arthur. I used to be a, a, a pension consultant here in the in the U.S. and 
we would we would meet with these these large private managers and you know technically they they don't have to be transparent uh, according to the the 40 act uh, private placement exemption but what we saw is because we had uh investors that that wrote 100 million dollar checks the the LP the GPs were very interested in in working with us and with our our pension fund clients and so uh, when we when we really got interested in a in a manager, you know whether it was a, an NDA or not, uh, even though these were public funds, we we had an opportunity to really get into the the strategies. And while they they have the reputation of of lacking transparency, uh, a lot of these managers have a lot of integrity, and they really want you to understand their their strategy. And and before you uh, you make an investment, uh, you have to make sure they're they're careful in a risk management sense, that they've got the, the separation of duties and the right attorneys and, and accountants. Uh, but you need to understand the strategy as well. And, and one of the things that, that relatively few managers in, in my mind have is, is an edge, uh, you know, what you call the, the inside information. You know, if they have proprietary deal flow, if they're investing in something that's really illiquid or really complex, it's, it's that edge that matters, right? And as you said, it's really hard to get that edge in in public or or liquid markets, but the the less liquid something becomes, the the bigger the part of the the universe your your GP is, the the better chance you have to add value. Exactly. Um, I, I still remember. I guess it was four years ago, we were doing some due diligence on Citadel, and we were in Chicago, and you know I'd, I'd seen the videos on television with their high frequency trading. But when you, you, you look at what they're doing, where they have line of sight towers from Chicago to Jersey City, because the microwaves travel milliseconds faster than a fiber pipe. If you believe as an individual investor uh, that you are going to outtrade these types of, of institutional firms, um, I think you're, you're kidding yourself. You need to, to find an edge and either that's accepting uh, larger amounts of normal than of volatility and, and holding through until the fundamentals prove themselves. Or you need to go to the private world where uh, the, the rules legally are different than, than the public markets. And, and if you're holding these, these hedge funds with a one to three year lockup period and, and gates, the, the temptation to, to trade or the ability to trade is, is really curtailed. And, and you are in it for the, for the long run. And what we see is that simply the the presence of trading activity uh, destroys value, and people mm-hmm. have this temptation to, to sell on you know March eighth and uh, really kind of crystallize those those losses. And that's a lot harder to do when you get into the the private equity or the the hedge fund space with a three year lock, because uh, you're in something that's complex and illiquid, but you you're actually denying yourself the ability to make bad decisions and trade out of it. Exactly. And I've said this before, Um, you know, I entered the industry in the the late 80s, early 90s. And and even back then, five-year GICs, and in some cases, 10-year GICs, non-redeemable, were the the investment of choice for many a conservative investor. Because you could get 8% yield? Right. So why was that illiquidity embraced by the regulators, embraced by conservative financial professionals like like CPAs. And today that illiquidity isn't. 
uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. That's pretty ironic. It was it was good enough for my 80 year old grandmother, but but now it's not good enough for a 40 year old investor. I, I don't understand. How about on the the crypto side? So how do you find people, or how do you guys how do you get exposure for for your clients and the, with their allocations to uh, to say Bitcoin? Because um, there were the the quadrigas of the world that money just disappeared, or maybe it didn't. Who knows? It went somewhere, but it's not in the investors' pockets. Um, and uh, so it it is the ultimate. I guess liquid security because you can do a trade or a transaction in it and it settles in two to ten minutes or whatever it is. But it's 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 hell quicker for settlement than any stock, which is T plus two or whatever. Um, but you've got all these different trading platforms, and then uh, oh, this can make it a bit dangerous because you know if we had Fred on a podcast and we just released, and he he had his TSX listed fund that invests solely in Bitcoin. Um, how? What, what do you think of those types of, or, and, and then there's also futures. What, what do you think of the comparison between, say, listed Bitcoin funds or, or private ones and then futures and then actually buying it direct on the exchange? Is there any sort of economies of scale when you do large enough transactions or enough transactions? Or how, how, do, you, how do you gauge that, Arthur? And maybe Keith can answer after that. Okay. okay. At, at a purity level, there's a saying uh, amongst Bitcoin investors not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Mm. Bitcoin is a bearer instrument, a bearer security. Mm. And you need to understand that first, first and foremost. And that can be a very, that can be a positive and, and it can be a negative. Yeah. Northland uh, began a two year due diligence process back in 2017 to better understand the nuances and the, the risks and the opportunities of investing in Bitcoin. And we traveled pretty much ac across North America. We met with every major investor in the space, except for George Soros, except for mm -hmm. Peter Thiel, and except for the Winklevoss twins. Although we met with professionals that advise all of them and have met with all of them. We, we met with the heads of Fidelity on the digital side. They've been mining Bitcoin since 2015. We really needed to understand it because in order for us to, to add it as an asset class, it needed to be financialized uh, in some aspect. Uh, what we found were some very good private funds, private mutual funds in mm -hmm. essence, that would hold Bitcoin and they would use an institutional quality custodian um, such as Fidelity, such as Gemini, uh, which is a licensed uh, New York State trust to manage the keys and therefore pretty much eliminate the odds of a quadriga situation. Mm. It's not the most pure form. Uh, it's always better to, to manage your own keys. But as a financial instrument, we thought an institutional quality fund made sense. Uh, what we found, um, the best solution for Canadian investors and, and maybe even global, was the 3IQ Bitcoin fund. And it's something that can be held because now it's publicly traded mm -hmm. within an investor's tax-free savings account. When we were looking at the return profile of Bitcoin, it is one of, if not the best, asymmetric return profiles we had ever seen. The upside could be in the million dollar range over mm -hmm. a decade per coin, USD. And even if you gave the downside a 90% chance of going to zero, when you run the math, it puts a fair valuation 
of a hundred thousand US dollars. Whoa. And when when you that that's that's how the decision tree works, right? Ninety yeah. percent yeah. goes to zero, ten percent goes to a million, it's worth a hundred thousand. And it's only ten thousand today. Right. So to be able to add that asset class in a non-taxed uh, investment account for a family to potentially improve return versus risk and then do it in a tax efficient manner. Um, the three IQ Bitcoin fund made tremendous sense uh, for full disclosure. We're probably Northland families are probably the largest investor in the fund. Wow. Well, for people that don't know, I didn't, I didn't tee that up, but that's, that's, it's interesting here. Yeah. And the, the losing your key, right? I, I actually got 20 or 50 bucks worth of Bitcoin from Anthony Diorio back in 2013, I think it was. And of course, I lost my key. So I lost, yes. I missed out on two grand or whatever the heck it's worth now. But yeah. And, and I think that you're, you're exactly right, Arthur, hold, holding something uh, with an institutional custodian or uh, in a fund is, is the way to, to do this. Um, you know, not, not your key, not your coin. You know, but but where's the where's the key, right? And so people believe in this in this decentralized uh, notion, and the more libertarian you get, maybe the more you like this this decentralized notion that we don't trust the banks or whatever. But uh, rumor has it that five or even ten percent of the coins have already been lost to to hard drive yeah. crashes, to people losing a printout, to fires, to floods, and and my concern. Is if uh, if I had my my keys and and I I passed away, uh, would my family even know I owned the coins, or would they even know what the what the key was? And so having that that custody in a in a trackable form in a in a security market or a bank kind of situation uh, gives you that that peace of mind that that you could uh, pass this along to your your family as well. I agree for the most part. Um... The, the initial exposure to Bitcoin probably is best done through an institutional quality uh, financial instrument. Um, but the ability to have a, an asset that your family can own that's not confiscated, that, that cannot be confiscated by the government uh, or any authority uh, is really an attractive feature. You can, you can look at places like South Africa where people smuggled out diamonds you can look at places of war uh, or, or where currency markets or markets get shut down, like in Venezuela uh, or Cuba to a, to a large extent. And to have an asset that you can control that doesn't go through a financial uh, intermediary is something that is worth learning about and having some amount of Bitcoin that you can properly store yourself. Uh, it's a great, great insurance policy. Um, you know, for instance, you can actually trade Bitcoin through ham radio now without the internet. You can trade it through satellite without the internet. You can use mesh networks on a phone so that you could trade it around a city like a walkie-talkie. That type of, of uh, transferability that that's, can't be censored, you know, is phenomenal tail risk insurance. But, but of course, you need a risk management process that, that goes with that. You, you make sure that your, your family knows that you, that you own the coin and that the, the key is, is accessible to your family, but, but not to, to anyone else. So uh, that, that is exactly. the, a, a safe way to do it. Uh, but you need to understand kind of the, the history of what's happened here 
and you do need to have that uh, that risk management as well. Exactly, and there are uh, commercial firms now available that will help you set up uh, multi-signature keys so that the the risk of uh, losing a single key or not having to be able to access it or doing estate planning uh, can all be done properly to, to reduce the risks of key loss. Uh, for, for large holdings of Bitcoin directly, uh, multi-sig makes a lot of sense. Wow, this has been great. Man, I think we should do a, a whole podcast just on Bitcoin. Uh, I see the minutes are racking up here. Uh, uh, yeah, I guess this has been, it's been great, guys. I guess we'll have to get you back, uh, get you both back in another podcast uh, sometime again soon. And uh, thanks a lot, Keith. Thank, thanks, Arthur. Uh, James, it's an absolute pleasure. It's, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Thanks, James. Always great to be with you.